Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Speaking with Joy. We are in the midst of what I've been calling in my mind my escape cast, which is a series of lovely and wholesomely distracting episodes on various topics I find fascinating and fun, also with lots of people that I've intended to talk to for a long time and have just now gotten around to talking to. So today I have the great fun and great pleasure of inviting a Twitter friend who has recently written and is coming out with a novel very soon uh, to the show. And this is Samantha Coho. That is how you say your last name, right? That is, yes. Oh, well, welcome to the show, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. So fun. Um, I followed you on Twitter for a long time. And then recently, it's been really fun. Of course, you know, we're all stuck inside. And I've had like a novel by various places in my house so that like if I'm there and I just want to pick up, I can pick it up and read for a little bit. And one of them has been the arc to your upcoming novel. So I'm excited (laughs) to chat with you about your writing and also about one of my pet fascinations, which is alchemy. Also one of my pet fascinations. Great. I, you know, it's one of those um, weird things where like, I feel like people who know it about it and know a lot about it. Mm. And so it's always fun to find somebody, uh, who thinks it's fascinating. So before we dive into that, uh, why don't you just tell us a bit about who you are, where you live, what you do, what you're about. Okay, so I live in Denver, Colorado. Um, We've been here for, ooh, since 2011, which at this point is is almost the longest I've lived anywhere. Uh, I grew up in California. Um, We moved around. and now I live here with my husband, Caleb Coho, who teaches philosophy at Metro State University of Denver, and my three children. I teach Latin um, at a classical school. I teach middle schoolers and high schoolers, which is really fun. And of course, I write books. Wow, you've got a lot on your plate. Um, a lot of good and interesting things. So yeah, like- I've been... I've been asking everybody this, um, as we're all living through this strange time, uh, what are some things you've been doing to kind of stay sane, create comfort in your world? Yeah, um, I have a few things. I I think uh, right now it's sort of roughly divided between three. Um, The first one is I am cooking a lot. Um, I used to be a personal chef. uh, before um, I was a Latin teacher, and um, that I, I was really obsessed with, you know, planning out beautiful meals and, of course, executing them. And um, I, I would spend um, untold hours on that. And recently, although I still have to cook <laughs> all the time, I have tr- been trying to. Um, put less thought and effort into it. But when everything shut down, it just sort of um, seemed like a natural thing to go back to. So 
Uh, yeah, I've been, I, I roasted a duck last week. I made spatzel. <laughs> it's, and yeah, it's just been fun to, um, spend a lot of time doing something that doesn't really require, it doesn't require a lot of thought for me. Mm. So I can sort of go into a, oh, a flow state, a I flow, guess. Yes. Yeah, it's it's creative, but not hard the way writing is hard. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. So that's nice. I also, um, I've been playing piano a bit more. Another mm -hmm. thing that I used to do that I haven't had time for. I have in particular um, one sonata that I have been playing forever, but not playing well. It's the, the Pathétique, the Beethoven mm. Pathétique. Um, it's really hard. <laughs> I can get through it, but um, I just finally decided, you know what, I'm going to actually master this since uh, since I can. So that's another thing I can do that, um, you know, lets me get out of my anxiety a little bit. And I think the third one is just um, putting on lipstick and posting pictures of myself on Instagram. <laughs> I was about to compliment your lipstick, and of course no one can see it, but the really impressive thing is that it perfectly matches your shirt. Thank you. I, I did that for you. <laughs> Thank you. I know, and I am wearing lipstick. I don't know if you can yeah, tell. It's no, like my... Nice. Yeah. No, I, I am very much in favor of that, as probably everyone who follows me on the internet knows. Yeah. Um, but... It just feels, it adds a little bit of dignity to this very strange time. And it's like normalcy and dignity and a little bit of fabulousness. Um, right. Yeah, so I've been doing that. Although I was really frustrated today because I had this like kind of bright pink springy one that I was wanting to wear because I just mm -hmm. felt like that was needed. It's a little bit sunnier here and I couldn't find it. So I ended up doing my like autumn kind of more fleshy color. But it'll we'll make um, lipstick is so helpful <laughs> actually <laughs> yesterday I was uh, organizing bathrooms um, you know because why not and um, <laughs> found the lipstick I thought I had lost and it really just saved my whole day was, okay <laughs> wonderful do you want to know a fascinating historical fact which I feel you would appreciate being a, a person who's interested in history um, during World War II lipstick sales like significantly increased and there's lots of, like, you know, ideas behind this. But they think one of the main reasons was just it was an easy, cheap thing that you could do that brought a little bit of happiness and dignity yeah. to a time that felt very stressful. And yeah. and that seems very right to me. Well, also, just sort of, I don't know why, but it gives me a bit, bit of a sense of control. <laughs> it does. Well, it makes you feel like yeah. it makes you feel like the world may fall to pieces, but I look fabulous. Yep. Yeah, and that's very important. So. I agree, I agree. <laughs> also, um, wow, okay, so you have been a Latin teacher, a writer, a personal chef. That's yeah. quite cool. Also, yeah. your Instagram stories are, like, deep inspiration to me. And also, it's like a mixture of deep inspiration and also just kind of, like, jealousy. Because, oh. <laughs> truly, your your food looks so good. I, I definitely, I definitely relate to, though, like... There's something about cooking that's so satisfying because it's labor intensive, but it's not intellectual. And there's like a, you know, with a book or with, with research, there's kind of never really an end. At some point you just stop. That's right. Whereas, whereas with cooking, there is a moment when it's done and then you can consume it. And it's this very like, it's very, it's like a very manifest. Yeah. It tastes good. And it's something that you, so I, 
I don't know if you feel this way, but I'm um, somebody who doesn't often do things with her hands. You know, like I'm yeah. always, I'm, I mean, I type, right? But um, that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of reading and I do a lot of writing and I do a lot of being online. And um, I, I don't make things physically except for when I cook. And there is something really satisfying about that. Um, that that oftentimes, you know, not to be annoying, but intellectual type people yeah. just don't get to have. So it's it's nice. Yeah. I like to consider it my own kind of sport. I'm not really good at sports, but you know, but it's yeah, that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally agree. Um I'm not very crafty, I'm not very coordinated, but cooking is like yeah, it's a very satisfying thing to be able to do. And oh, music too. Feed people. Yes, yeah. and you feed people and it makes other people happy. Right. Yeah. I know that's the one thing that I've been kind of like uh sad about with all the isolation is I cook and then I'm like, well, I guess I'll feed this to my brother again. Um, <laughs> but no, no. I do have several people that I'm feeding. Um, but even so, I feel a little bit like I wish I had friends over who could also see this <laughs> <laughs> and taste it, but also see it. But, well, and, and taste it. But yeah, hence the Instagram stories. So, yes, you know, well, you all have different ways of coping. <laughs> yes, but Fine. I'm very much in support of yours and music. Yes. So we have the time. So why not? Um, all yeah. right. So so you're one of your major hats that you wear at the moment is as a writer. Um, yeah. So how long have you wanted to be a writer? What kind of writer would you describe yourself as? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me about that. Okay. So I think like a lot of writers, maybe most writers, I am a writer because I was a reader. Um, mm. And I um, spent, I became a, a devourer of stories quite early in my life. And then um, when I, I was homeschooled. Um, was so, I. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know if this was your experience, but a common feature for a lot of us is a lot of time by yourself. Yes. And um, when you are by yourself a lot um, and you love to read, that's what you do. Um, and that really became sort of the primary way that I entertained myself, mm -hmm. um, the primary way that I learned about the world. Um, and also, so, of course, then the primary way that I that I wanted to express myself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think... Um, I, I still think in stories. I think everybody does to some extent. You know, narrative is how we process our whole life. Um, yeah. And so for me, uh, novels are just the form that my brain is trained in. Because when I was a kid, I would read like a novel a day because that was yeah. that was all I did, really. Um, and yeah, so of course I, I wanted to write them myself. Unfortunately, um, that, you know, I... I, I was comparing myself to these great writers that I was reading and, and thinking, well, this is bad. I don't think I can ever, I don't think I'll ever be as good as them. So, so I kind of quit, um, mm -hmm. until, and then, then I went to college and, um, it really didn't have any time to write, although, you know, still read. That was, that's basically what we do at Thomas Aquinas college is, is read, um, and math, <laughs> so much math. <laughs> but uh yeah and then after college and grad school um when I was having babies I uh found myself wanting that outlet um 
again and just say, well, if, you know, I don't have to be good at it. I can just, I just need something to do um, that isn't childbearing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I started writing books when my first child, who is now 12, was a baby. Mm-hmm. And I finished my first book, the not the one that's being published, just my first book that I completed when he was seven. So the first book took seven years. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's how it goes when you're writing and also um, having babies and, you know, very young children. And now, since since then, actually, I've written basically a book a year. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a uh, a good output. Um, so tell us about, you You have two books coming out in the next few years, right? Yeah. So uh, A Golden Fury, that's my debut novel. Um, shall I pitch it to you? Pitch it to me. <laughs> All right. So a teenage alchemist is on the verge of a life-changing discovery uh, in 1792 France, but the cost may be her own mind. Hmm. So, yes, yeah, we're on the verge of the French Revolution. Um, my protagonist is an alchemist, mm. which is a fun thing to be. Um, yeah, and the cool thing about alchemy is that there's all kinds of conflict built in mm. to the, just the pursuit of it. Um, and then my, uh, my second book, uh, which will come out fall 2021 um, with my same publisher, uh, is called Bright Ruined Things. What a good title. And, yeah, thank you. <laughs> we, uh, we spent a lot of time going back and forth on that title, but it's sort of, um, it's a, it's set in a magical 1920s. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do that, you know, sort of bright young things. Yeah. Like that play. Yeah. So, and that is, uh, it's a Tempest retelling, retelling of the Tempest by Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And, with like 1920s world that is so fun i can't wait to get my hands on that one too so something that seems like it's a real theme at least in these two novels is you are a you're a historical novelist it seems like you like you like your novels to have a rich historical context and that's something i noticed oh sorry Mm -hmm. go ahead no no uh that was something i noticed with this one i was um so, of course, it starts in France near the Revolution, and then she's in Oxford. And I was kind of, like, on edge for a second because I was like, I love Oxford. I've lived in Oxford. She can't get Oxford wrong. It'll distress me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but don't know how that worked out. <laughs> no, but, like, for the most part, I was like, no, she really did her homework. Um, have you been to Oxford? It seems like you have. Yeah, 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 I have been to Oxford. Um, I did a summer program thing with um, <laughs> with ISI. I'm not going to tell you what that is if you don't know. <laughs> I do know what it is. And, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, anyway, um, I did that, and it was at Oriel College, so I have some okay. um, vivid memories of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, but both that and then kind of the history of it, it was really fun. And I just was very – it seemed very obvious to me that this was a very – well-researched um, book. And aside from the pleasure of it as a story, I was also like thinking of my homeschool brain. I feel like most of what mm-hmm. I learned in history was through historical novels of, ver- of some various kind. And I was like, this would be a really good one to kind of like get the sense of the whole scope of, you know, French Revolution, what that meant politically, but also that kind of crossover between you're starting to have more of a secularism that 
is almost and, and magic and religion. Anyway, it was very, it felt very planted in its, um, in its context. So is that something that's important to you? The historical yeah. aspects? Yeah, that is very important to me. I think I, I relate a lot to what you said about learning most of your history through historical novels. I, I feel like I have this very um, broad, not necessarily 100% accurate, but very broad sense of history from just voraciously reading historical novels. Of course, um, since then, I have had to be more... Um, you know, specific in my research. So I do actually have to read history books now, which is, <laughs> which is um, fun as long as they make them sort of like stories, you know? Yeah. Uh, I feel like historians often miss their chance to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's often a, a forest for the trees uh, dichotomy. Yeah. So I, I do love, um, I love situating stories in history. I think partly because it helps um, there's something about different specifics, specifics being different, um, mm -hmm. that can, in a way, make the universal experiences of being a person more, more evident. Um, of course, also just history is interesting in the different, the way that people have lived in different contexts. If you're somebody who's interested in that, then of course, you're going to be interested in putting stories there. So yeah. I'd say that, yeah, that's, that definitely motivates me. I'm at this point, uh, sort of my, my brand, if you will, is historically inspired fantasy. So yeah, yes. And that's the thing too, is cause it's not just historical fiction. It also has this magical yeah. fantasical element to it. Cause um, if you can put magic in there, then why, why would you not do that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah well I mean and this period is so fun for this first one the bright fury because it kind of like lends itself to that with all the alchemical stuff I think so something you said reminds me of I remember when I read Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue and mm -hmm. he kind of I mean he's definitely casting a universal vision of virtue right he's 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 yep. not a relativist but at the same time he says virtue looks and will call upon us in different ways, depending on the era that we find ourselves in and the family and the country and the, and I feel like one of the gifts of historical fiction or whatever you want to call it is that it helps you imagine how virtue looks different, played out in different places, in different times, in a different context, which then helps you think back on like, oh, well, if I find this fascinating context and I think, you know, how hard it would be to be good in that, then it helps you actually think about that in your own unique and at the moment bizarre circumstances if that makes sense yeah I think yeah. that's sort of the thing about stories generally is that it, it does get you into somebody else's mind and gives you the experience of being uh yeah. being a different different sort of person different sort of circumstances and um getting into a different time period is another species of that maybe a, a broader uh a broader way of doing that because of course it's um as many different experiences that uh, as there are uh, of people now in the world, you know, yeah. that's still, we still have now in common. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So now I want to, I want to ask your, I want to ask you questions about alchemy, the thing that we are both nerdily fascinated by. Um, yeah. So, okay. First of all, for those who may be listening and being like, what on earth are they talking about? Give like a, elevator pitch for what alchemy is 
Okay, so I think I would describe alchemy as uh, the pursuit of um, transmutation uh, of something into a better thing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the the two main uh, goals, objectives of alchemy throughout history, and um, it's interesting that alchemy arose in a lot of different places in the world with these similar goals, um, have been the uh, the, pers- the change- changing of uh, lesser metals into better metals. Mm-hmm. So specifically gold, obviously, is what mm-hmm. everybody wanted most because it was the most valuable. And also uh, the pursuit of um, health or even stronger, like life, like eternal life. Mm-hmm. So the 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 object that is most associated with the with with alchemy, um, both in history and also probably in popular culture now because of Harry Potter, mm-hmm. is for stone. And the philosopher's stone uh, was supposed to be able to do both of those things, mm-hmm. both change all metals into gold, and give the elixir of life or mm-hmm. just eternal life. Uh, not just perfect health. Sometimes it was just perfect health, but sometimes it was actually eternal yeah. life. And um, throughout history, this this was obviously a mix of, of magic um, and science. They really were doing stuff in labs. And um, uh, there was you know, a lot of ph- philosophical background, theology. It was all mixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't it sometimes said that alchemy is kind of the mother of chemistry? at least in this era. Alchemy is almost more than the mother of chemistry. It kind of was chemistry. Like chemistry yeah. was born out of people of out of alchemists um, feeling that their reputation <laughs> was too uh, tainted and deciding to rebrand as chemistry. And of course, when they did that, they did shed the mystical elements, but they took um, really all the same processes Yes. So yes, it absolutely. It is the mother of chemistry. Um, but chemistry was sort of ashamed of its mother and hid her. Oh, almost. <laughs> sounds almost like a relationship in the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Like when you read your book, and this is evident in other alchemical tales as well. Uh, the way that they describe doing alchemy is very much. I mean, it is what we currently would think of as chemistry. It's doing things over fires and mixing things together and seeing what it makes new properties of. And yeah. it's fascinating too, because I think, you know, especially to like a modern context or to a Christian context, alchemy can sound like, well, that's just like trying to make potions or something like it's very mm-hmm. um, magical or witchcrafty or whatever. But what's interesting is that right up through like late medieval Europe, it was also considered like one of the best analogies or ways of understanding salvation or personal growth. So like there's this quote with Luther where he's like, I cannot think of a better analogy or more suitable way to describe what happens to Christians in, in justification and sanctification than, you know, in alchemy, which is just yeah. a fascinating thing. It is. And it's something that alchemists really grabbed hold of. Um, it, 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 there there are varying degrees of sort of magic and mysticism in the, you know, it was practiced for thousands of years. Alchemy was, um, but there, um, especially medieval alchemy, there was a lot of, um, 
theology, especially sort of metaphorical theology. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that since since a lot of these optimists were operating on Aristotelian ideas of what substances uh, were, and also Aristotelian idea of the elements, they had the sense that you know, if we have um, certain elements and some of them are base and some of them are are more pure, maybe more spiritual, we can be like God in, you know, taking apart um, elements and putting them back together to be more pure. Uh, and they they made a lot of um, hay of of like God was an alchemist, you know. God was doing what we're doing. God made God's making perfect substances. And like you you mentioned Martin Luther, they they would often think of the resurrection as as being sort of what they're trying to do, right? They're trying yeah. to make perfect substances, uh, purified um, substances. Yeah. So there was a lot of um, metaphor there, although alchemy was often. Uh, condemned by <laughs> the authorities and um, the church uh, because because of the element of magic that was there too it was it was always suspect as well sometimes embraced sometimes suspect it, it it lived on this sort of edge well and it's interesting because I feel like your book does as well but there's a sense in which it's a great spiritual metaphor but there's also a sense in which it is kind of trying to be to be God in some sense to like be able to control or manipulate the natural world and make it better than it is. But I do think that metaphor, the idea of taking something common and making it pure is very much, you know, it it does make a lot of sense theologically for like when you think about taking the common or the sinful and, you know, transmuting it to be righteous and eternal, like in that kind of movement. So it's interesting. It's it. I think it it was more fun when they literally thought they could do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, unfortunately, it turns out that um, things aren't actually made out of element out of you know four elements or three elements, and and Darn. there isn't actually a prime matter that we can isolate and yeah. <laughs> make perfect yeah. substances yeah. out of. Uh, but yeah, the idea that that um, that this could actually be done, of course, uh, it's incredibly powerful um yes making gold that's cool but also eternal life like that's a one of the compelling things about alchemy i think is just how universal how universally desirable the goals are yeah Uh, health wealth and eternal life exactly right (laughs) it's not like some that we purged ourselves of in the, in a more enlightened age. Right. So I was just listening to a podcast with this guy whose name I forget, who runs some Institute that are, that's basically just trying to achieve the philosopher's stone. Like they, they think they, they can, um, well, not really like metaphorically, <laughs> metaphorically. I was like, wait, they still exist <laughs> to extend life. Uh, yeah. you know, indefinitely. And, and he's like, Oh yeah. In five years, we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to make people, we're, we're going to cure aging. We're all going to be able to live to 500. I was like, Oh, that sounds like, that sounds oh, like philosopher's stone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so is, so is transhumanism the new alchemy? So this wasn't actually, this guy isn't transhumanism. He, he, he really just wants to, he, he wants to extend our physical bodies. He's not trying huh. to upload them into computers or anything, but yes, transhumanism is another example of uh, that yeah historically where are the origins of alchemy when does it come around what is its 
yeah, what is kind of the arc well, of that? The, the difficult thing about that is that it arose in a lot of different places, um, which is also an interesting thing about that. So there's there's Chinese alchemy, there's Indian alchemy, there's hmm. there's Greek alchemy, Egyptian alchemy, all with similar goals. I think in, in China and India, maybe it was more focused on like the elixir of life than the hmm. transmission of animals. Uh, there's even a historian who has looked into which um, Chinese emperors he thinks had died of, of um, taking elixirs <laughs> of life. <laughs> which, as you, I mean, like on a practical, on this we can't be moderns about. If you think about what they were trying to do, they were basically doing chemistry to try to make base metals into gold and then drinking that. Right. Yeah, so yeah. one can imagine how that might not work out well. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's the assumption behind the uh, behind the um, research is like definitely some sometimes this went bad. So let's see. I mean, we know that these some of these emperors were really obsessed with extending their life indefinitely. So let's see which ones suffered from it. Um, I think. Okay, let me see though. So a lot of legends arise about uh, around Alexander the Great's time. A lot of times, alchemists want to trace. Uh, the origin of alchemy back to um, Egypt and Alexander the Great and sort of this um, collision of those two cultures. And um, so the idea of Alexander, I think that there's a legend that Alexander found a text of Hermes in Egypt. Um, and then there's uh, Hermes is a big figure in alchemy. He, he, uh, he's sort of a patron and there was this, um, they called him Hermes Trismegistus. Hermes you want to know something? I don't feel bad saying this cause I think it's quite hubristic to do this anyway. There was a guy in my first year of my master's who changed his name on Facebook to Her Hermes Trismegistus, which means the thrice great, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I was bad. like, who, who does this guy think he is? <laughs> Well, Hermes the thrice great, I guess. <laughs> yeah, maybe alchemy worked, and he just came back. Yeah. So um, the you know the um, the serpent staff thing. Yeah. The, the mythical, that that comes from that. Um, oh. That sort of mystical cult group. Uh, but yeah, the origins are pretty obscure. They go. Yeah. They go. It goes really far back, and um, yeah. So okay, so to trace out where we are. Alchemy, trying to turn base metals into pure metals, usually gold, has the idea of giving you endless wealth, endless health, and ideally the elixir of life or the ability to extend life forever. Yeah. Has this complicated relationship, particularly as we get into medieval Europe, with Christianity? Because on the one hand, it's, it like you said, it has these kind of cultic origins. It also mm -hmm. has a real, I mean, there is a sense in which it is trying to play God, trying to achieve eternal life through kind of manipulation of elements. And yeah. so there's a sense in which that's very rejected um, mm -hmm. naturally. and But then at the same time, it's also used as this really powerful metaphor. And that's the thing that we haven't talked about yet, mm -hmm. which is that it is one of the most prevalent kind of like devices in literature to mm -hmm. describe kind of alchemical transformations. But usually that's based on the three stages. Kind of, but those kind of, and that becomes like this language for an imagery of transformation in literature. So, mm. describe for us the three stages. Do you know the the red, white, and black? So the white elixir is when it's like the the pre stage when you can um, transform all the metals into not gold but silver, mm. and then 
that the the black if maybe I'm thinking of this wrong, but I know it, it blackens beef. It's supposed to blacken before it becomes both the white and then maybe again before it becomes the red. Red, and the red is the final the, stage, right? Final stage, yes. The uh, when you have the philosopher's stone and it can do everything that you want it to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so the stages are. I think I think you're right. I think it's and I think it's described different and differently in different places. But there's yeah, the yeah. black, which is kind of like the death or the whatever. Looks. Yes, I have a moment in my book when they're like, "Oh no, it's dead," but it's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So the black is like the "Oh no, it's dead." Then you have the white, um, which is the, it's like second best. You're almost there and it can create silver. And then you have the red, which is the final stage that creates the philosopher's stone. This is also when it's like talked about in relationship to soul. So like when Luther, this, I'll add my nerdy bit here that comes with literature and theology. So when Luther talks about it. He's like, okay, well, black is us in a sinful state, right? Um, and that's like, that's pre anything happening. White is like a purely spiritual state, which is like better than the sinful physical state. But um, so it's like a separation of the clean spirit from the body, um, which is, I think, like in the kind of chemical descriptions of it matches with this. It's like the separation of the impure from the pure, um, which is better than the black. But it's still not perfect because humans are made to then unite that back with the physical. And so the spiritual and the physical, and that's where you get the red or the blood. But so that's kind of the picture of humans go from the state of black to like a spiritual state, but we long for the resurrection in which like the redeemed body and the redeemed soul are united in the red, which is like this picture for eternal life. So that's interesting. So the way that translates to, um, to literature is you often have those three colors as being like called upon and, and a character's like trans, like if they're becoming a good character, you have those colors play in or names of particular characters will appeal to those different stages in the alchem- of the characters becoming a better person. Um, know that. So what, 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 uh, what characters, like what works do we see this in? So this would be easy to do in Harry Potter, but it's because she's drawing out other ones. So with Harry, he has these three father figures, right? And it's Rubius Hagrid, um, Sirius Black and Albus Dumbledore. Serious Black. Oh. <laughs> I know. It's wild. Serious Black, who, um, obviously, that, that's the first stage. Um, Albus Dumbledore. Albus means white. Yep. And then Rubius Hagrid. Now, if you Red. look... Yep. Now, Harry's whole arc, right, is is defeating death. And right. which is, of course, the kind of desire that you have with the Philosopher's Stone. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm not, I did not just make up all this on my own. There's a whole section on it in... Um, John Granger's thing on how Harry casts his spell. Um, so you have, if you think about the last three books, which are kind of like his, his tridium, his, you know, leading up to the Calvary, the, the, I'm totally going to spoil Harry Potter. So if you haven't read it, just skip forward like 30 seconds from now. Have you read it? You have read it, right? I just had a moment. I'd be shocked if you hadn't read it. Okay. So I've read them all like 12 times. Okay. So, okay. So this is incredibly nerdy, but so the fifth book Ends with the death of Sirius Black. Sirius Black. So that's our first stage complete. Uh-huh. Okay. The second, the the sixth book ends with the death of Albus Dumbledore. And then the <laughs> the seventh book ends with who carrying him back from the dead? Hagrid. Yeah, Rubius Hagrid. So he's made it through his three stages, and then he resurrects. 
Wow. I, that's amazing. I kind of wonder if she intended that or if it was just the, you know, the world spirit speaking through her. (laughs) I know. No. So what's interesting, she, people would be like, did you study witchcraft to write your books? And she was like, no, I didn't study witchcraft, but I studied alchemy. So she definitely, I think, intended it. But it's also interesting because you'll see it in other things. Like there's this, um, okay, this is my homework for all listeners. Do you know the the singer um, Florence the Machine? Yes. Okay. Go watch Shake It Off and notice that her dress and the dresses of people around her change from black to white to red. Okay. And it's I like will... all this alchemical energy. Anyway, so it's, it is... But it is in a lot of literature, particularly, like, post-Reformation. Um, and then there's a lot of it in, like, I think there's a lot of it in Dante. And anyway, it's just fascinating because it becomes, like, not licit anymore necessarily in the religious realms, but it's used as this, like, metaphor yeah. for metaphor. spiritual yeah. transformation or, like, the movement of co- conquering death. And I just think that's really fascinating. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And I mean, I mean, it's continuing on this um, tradition of finding analogies in nature um, for spiritual yeah. things. But uh, you can see why alchemy would be really appealing for that, because it's it's sort of both nature and magic. <laughs> yeah. And of course, it's mining Christianity, too, for a lot of its themes. So Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's interesting, because in your book, uh, would you describe, the, is the main character kind of as much as she can be secular-ish. Yeah, secular-ish. She has not been raised in a religion other than alchemy. Yeah. And like alchemy, it's it's been pursued as a scientific pursuit, even though it has magic. Which is another interesting thing, because I think alchemy can make us think about how we think about science in an almost alchemical sense of like, it'll, it can solve our problems, it'll give us eternal life, Mm -hmm. um, just like you were saying. So it's kind of like humans can't get away from those desires. They just... We just keep pursuing them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm, so fascinating. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So where would you tell people to look if they wanted to just sniff around a little bit more for information about alchemy? Or just like the history of it? Where were some of your pl- favorite things you learned or, or found? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really broad topic. There's a lot of um, history books written about it. My favorite, though, and the one that I use the most, um, is called The Secrets of Alchemy by um, Lawrence mm, Principe, I think is mm-hmm. how you pronounce that. He's um, a professor of the history of science, I think, and maybe history and philosophy of science. Um, and he wrote um, his book starts with um, sort of historical overview. It's very philosophically informed. It's um, very detailed. But then he goes into uh, an attempt to replicate a lot of the um, experiments of alchemy that we actually have enough data for him huh. to sort of do from from the historical record. And um, he 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 manages to like get some results. Right? He's not transforming (laughs) transmuting lead into gold um but there are a number of sort of theories of um alchemy that uh he can he can replicate the the results that gave them evidence that they were right so for instance like there was the um the theory that everything is alive metals Mm -hmm. everything has has life in it and it's like growing out of seeds and um there's this one 
experiment he does that shows it's basically crystals growing um Mm -hmm. and yeah so you can see they're like oh look like these 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 rocks are like these these rocks are growing so they have life in them um yeah yeah and and that's really cool and so uh, particularly just like as a technical note um since i was writing scenes of Mm. alchemy happening (laughs) in labs i needed to know specifically like what it looked like so that it was very helpful for me to just literally just learn about like what instruments did they use and and how did they think these processes were going to work and um he goes he goes into that so um both on the history and the science It's, it's, it's really fun book yeah that sounds like so much fun um and very nerdy uh enjoyable reading I think it's, like, with everything you're saying, I feel like there's this theme of, I think we can tend to think on, we can tend to think of something like alchemy as just like, oh, that's ridiculous. Pre-modern people were just trying to do stuff, you know. But thinking of it in that sense of, they were like the scientists of their day trying to explain how things happened and and what they were, and were trying to figure out ways to live longer and have a more prosperous world. And it's like, well, what do we think scientists are doing now? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, I wonder if, um, if the original chemist hadn't, um, been so embarrassed (laughs) about the origins of alchemy, if we would have a different um, view of it now, because they really, uh, they learned a lot of stuff along the way their, their, um, experiments were precursors to scientific method. And, but it it actually went on much longer than you might think. Um, (laughs) so like for, I mean, for instance, Isaac Newton was really into alchemy. You probably know that. Um, I didn't know that actually. Oh yeah, no, he hit it because it was even then, you know, very bad reputation. But he um, he spent more time on alchemy than um, on well, almost anything else. I Gravity. think. <laughs> yeah, it, it did change. Um, it 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 became um, more metaphorical. I think a lot a lot of time in later applications of it, and people would sort of look back and think, oh, well, here's what these experiments really meant it was really about transforming your soul yeah um, in various ways but yeah I'm interested to see how your book will end I told you specifically not to give me any spoilers because um you or else <laughs> yeah yeah and I I know and I'm reading it before anybody else has gone to their hands so I won't mm-hmm. say anything but it does seem like I think that the danger that alchemy poses in and in stories and throughout history was this sense of like desiring to control or to to play God or to act as though you could control, um, and the kind of fallout that could happen because of that. Um, so it's Not just very, spoiler, there was a, also a lot, there were, um, frequent, uh, allusions to deals with the devil being made to achieve the, the alchemical results that you needed. And so a lot of it is, I feel like it's kind of reconciling ourselves to the limitations of fallen earthly life. Um, what? can achieve yeah. on power. Yeah, we'll get you in our own power. And I feel like that's a very prescient message even for now and that we are limited and that that is as true for us now with modern science and with all of our 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 thoughts that we can do and be whoever we want all the time with no repercussions as it was a reminder for the alchemists of the past. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we'll see though. Maybe, maybe it'll work out for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hope everything works out. <laughs> and I mean, and it is magical realism. So I know, I mean, I'm really rooting for her finding the Philosopher's Stone slash making it. So I, I hold out hope. You know what you think um, when you finish. 
I definitely will. So Samantha, this has been so much fun. Thank you for nerding out with me. I think there's one other person in the entire world who could do that. So uh, this has been so fun. Where should people find, follow, find and follow you and find your book? So I'm on Twitter uh, at smcoho, um, and I'm on Instagram at Samantha Coho. Um, you can find my book on, uh, well, wherever fine books are sold. Hopefully it's, it is available for pre-order now. So you can look on IndieBound, you can pre-order on Barnes and Noble. You can even pre-order on Amazon. Although I'm really hoping that when all this is over, we have more than just one evil bookstore left in the world. <laughs> I know. Great. All right. So people can check you out on Twitter and Instagram and, um, and find your book. And try to order it from somewhere other than the one evil bookstore, uh, yes. by which we oh, mean Amazon. Add my book on Goodreads, please. Or both of my books. Yes, me. add both your books on Goodreads. I firmly endorse that. Thank you so much for coming to the show, Samantha. Thank you so much, Joy. I really appreciated it.